Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library, and today we're going to continue and conclude our discussion of one of the most momentous and important events in local history, the British evacuation of Charleston on the 14th of December, 1782. In our last episode, we talked about the events of the American Revolution leading up to this evacuation in an effort to understand the context of this big event and its significance. Let's pick up the story in early December 1782, when the end of the Long War was quite literally in sight. Most of the American army in South Carolina, consisting of several hundred men under the leadership of General Nathaniel Greene, was camped at various plantations on the west side of the Ashley River. When intelligence suggested that British forces in urban Charleston were nearing the end of their preparations for departure, General Greene gave the order for the American advance guard to cross the river and investigate. During the late evening of Thursday, December 12th, and the early morning of Friday the 13th, General Anthony Wayne crossed the river at Ashley Ferry with 300 light infantrymen, 80 men from the Cavalry Legion commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lee, and 20 artillerymen with two six-pounders. After crossing into what is now North Charleston, they marched south towards the British lines of fortification across the neck of the peninsula, near Colonel Thomas Schubert's plantation called Belvedere. Today, that's an industrial site immediately north of what is called Magnolia Cemetery. Their orders from General Green were, quote, to endeavor as much as possible to harass the retiring British garrison, end quote. Before any offensive operations began, however, a civilian named Maurice Simmons arrived from the town bearing a message from General Alexander Leslie, the commanding officer of the remaining British troops. Leslie proposed that if the Americans would allow the British to withdraw from the town without being harassed and without any impediment, he, General Lee, would pledge that the departing troops would do no damage to the town and would not fire on the Americans or the town after the British were safely on board their vessels in the harbor. If, however, the Americans tried to harass the departing troops, then General Leslie could not be held accountable for what violent consequences might follow. General Wayne readily agreed to the peaceful proposition, and the parties agreed that the Americans would advance towards the town after the firing of a cannon on the morning of Saturday the 14th. General Wayne then withdrew his troops to Ackaby Plantation, which is now Stark Industrial Park, on the south side of Azalea Avenue, where they spent the night and tried, quote, to prepare themselves to make as handsome an appearance as circumstances would admit of on the following morning, end quote. Meanwhile, west of the Ashley River, General Nathaniel Green, General William Moultrie, and several hundred American troops were still camped at Middleton Place Plantation. On the morning of Saturday, December 14, 1782, they all decamped and began crossing the river at Ashley Ferry. Around noon, they joined up with South Carolina Governor John Matthews, who had come down the mainland through what is now North Charleston. Governor Matthews 
Generals Green and Moultrie and their troops did not hurry southward to catch up with General Wayne, however. Instead, they held back and formed the second wave of the American forces to reoccupy Charleston. As the governor and the American second wave made their rendezvous at Ashley Ferry, General Anthony Wayne was already leading his advance guard into Charleston. The firing of the cannon on the morning of the 14th was the signal for Wayne to begin a slow march down the broad path, now King Street Road, towards the town. Just before 11 a.m., they reached the outermost fortifications across Charleston Neck, approximately where King Street crosses Columbus Street. According to the published memoirs of Major Alexander Garden, who was a member of Colonel Lee's Legion, the advancing American column saw in front of them a number of German Jaegers about 50 yards in front of them, who had been guarding the entrance into town, but were now falling back ahead of the Americans. Major Garden tells us that a few of the American officers rode forward, not to fight the German mercenaries, but to engage in a bit of informal intelligence gathering. The Jaegers explained that General Leslie had ordered the civilian inhabitants of Charleston to remain in their houses so as not to interfere with the British withdrawal and to prevent non-combatants from getting injured in the event of a firefight. The British remained suspicious of the Americans to the last, remembered Major Garden. The retreating Navy had posted armed galleys in both the Ashley and the Cooper Rivers, and these vessels rode southward along the edges of the peninsula, keeping their watchful eyes fixed on the advancing American troops. Besides these small galleys, British men-of-war were arrayed along the length of the Cooper River waterfront, with cannon loaded and matches lit ready to deliver a series of punishing broadsides into the town if the Americans offered the least provocation. Fortunately, the evacuation took place without incident. In his published memoirs, General William Moultrie recalled that the cautious British withdrawal and American advance, quote, was done with great order and regularity, except now and then the British called to General Wayne that he was too fast upon them, which occasioned him to halt a little, end quote. Having agreed to follow slowly the retiring British troops into Charleston, remembered Moultrie, General Wayne kept a respectful distance of about 200 yards until he reached the fortified town gates just above the modern intersection of King and Calhoun Streets. Once the last of the British troops withdrew south of the town gates, they turned eastward onto Boundary Street, now Calhoun Street, and filed off towards Gadsden's Wharf on the Cooper River waterfront. Around 11 a.m. on December 14th, the 400 American troops under the command of General Anthony Wayne marched through the town gates into Charleston. It had been two years, seven months, and two days since British troops had captured the town, during which time many people had lost hope in the dream of American liberty. Marching down King Street, the weary soldiers found the town quiet and seemingly deserted. There were no fireworks, no rapturous crowds, no celebratory bands or streaming banners. 
adhering to their last instructions from the British command, the town's few remaining inhabitants stayed locked inside their homes until the potential for danger had passed. The American column marched down King Street to Broad Street, then turned east and halted in front of the South Carolina State House at the corner of Meeting Street. From this post, General Wayne sent out small detachments to reconnoiter the town and assess the situation. Meanwhile, farther up the neck of the Charleston Peninsula, Governor John Matthews and his entourage were just making their rendezvous with General Greene and the main body of the American troops on the east side of Ashley Ferry. Once the whole body of the Americans were safely across the Ashley River, they began the long march of just over nine miles to the gates of Charleston. At this point, I'll let General William Moultrie tell the rest of the story from his published memoirs. Quote, At 3 o'clock p.m., General Green conducted Governor Matthews and the South Carolina Privy Council with some other of the citizens into town. We marched in in the following order. An advance guard of an officer and 30 of Lee's dragoons on horseback. Then followed the governor and General Green. The next two were General Gist and myself, Moultrie. After us followed the Privy Council, citizens, and officers, making altogether about 50. 180 cavalry brought up the rear. We halted in Broad Street, opposite where the South Carolina Bank now stands, at the northwest corner of Broad and Church Streets. There we alighted from our horses, and the cavalry were discharged to quarters. Afterwards, everyone went where they pleased, some in viewing the town, others visiting their friends. It was a grand and pleasing sight to see the enemy's fleet, upward of 300 sail, laying at anchor from Fort Johnson to Five Fathom Hole in a curved line as the current runs. And what made it more agreeable? They were ready to depart from the port. The great joy that was felt on this day by the citizens and soldiers was inexpressible. The widows, the orphans, the aged men, and others who, from their particular situations, were obliged to remain in Charleston, many of whom who had been cooped up in one room of their own elegant houses for upwards of two years, whilst the other parts of the house were occupied by the British officers, many of whom were a rude, uncivil set of gentlemen. Their situations and the many mortifying circumstances that occurred to them in that time must have been truly distressing. I cannot forget that happy day when we marched into Charleston with the American troops. It was a proud day to me, and I felt myself much elated at seeing the balconies, the doors, and windows crowded with the patriotic fair, that is, the females, the aged citizens, and others, congratulating us on our return home, saying, God bless you, gentlemen. You are welcome home, gentlemen. Both citizens and soldiers shed mutual tears of joy. It was an ample reward for the triumphant soldier, after all the hazards and fatigues of war which he had gone through, to be the instrument of releasing his friends and fellow citizens from captivity from restoring to them their liberties and possessions of their city and country again. This 14th day of December, 1782, ought never to be forgotten by the Carolinians, 
It ought to be a day of festivity with them, as it was the real day of their deliverance and independence. End quote. On Sunday, December 15, 1782, the elected government of South Carolina was reestablished in the State House at the northwest corner of Meeting and Broad Streets. According to a letter from General Nathaniel Green to the Continental Congress, the town opened for business on Monday the 16th, and on Tuesday the 17th, the last vessels of the British fleet crossed the bar at the mouth of Charleston Harbor and sailed away into the Atlantic. According to statistics kept by British authorities at that time, the evacuation of Charleston in December 1782 included more than 5,000 armed troops, including British regulars, Hessian mercenaries, and members of various Loyalist militia units, as well as 3,794 white men, women, and children, and 5,333 enslaved people of African descent. All told, approximately 14,000 people departed in this massive evacuation aboard approximately 130 vessels of the British Navy. This was a remarkable undertaking, especially when we consider that in 1774, just prior to the outbreak of the American Revolution, the town of Charleston hosted a population of just over 12,000 people. Life in Charleston and the rest of South Carolina very slowly returned to normal in the weeks and months after the British evacuation. The preliminary peace treaty signed in Paris in late November 1782 was formalized by more specific terms signed on January 20th and February 20th, 1783. The American Congress in Philadelphia received this information on April 11th, and on the 15th of April, 1783, ratified the Treaty of Paris. This news reached Charleston on Sunday, April 20th, and the town exploded into a riot of jubilant celebrations on April 22nd and 23rd. Since January, the South Carolina legislature had been planning to immediately repair and augment the fortifications around Charleston, just in case the British had any notions of recapturing the town. After the news of a ratified peace treaty in April 1783, however, Governor Benjamin Gerard canceled all plans for new defensive works. Between 1784 and 1789, the accumulated fortifications of colonial and revolutionary Charleston were demolished and built over. At the end of 1783, to commemorate the British evacuation of the capital of South Carolina, the Charleston Battalion of Artillery adopted the 14th of December as their anniversary date. For about 20 years after the end of the American Revolution, the Old Bats, or the Ancient Battalion, as they became known, kept alive the memory of this momentous day with fireworks, parades, and feasts every December 14th. Around the time of the War of 1812, however, the holiday gradually disappeared from the calendar. Perhaps the memory of its significance faded as veterans of the Revolution passed away. Perhaps Charleston's collective attention became focused on the new war with Britain, 
which some began to call our second American Revolution. Whatever the reason, the gradual decline of celebrations in honor of the 14th of December was an unfortunate lapse in our state's collective memory. Without interruption, we have continued to commemorate the 28th of June, 1776, when South Carolina forces repulsed a British invasion, and the 4th of July, 1776, when our representatives signed the Declaration of Independence. Those events represent significant dates in our War of Independence, of course, but neither represents the alpha or the omega of our revolutionary struggle. Why is it that we don't celebrate the end of the war and the departure of the invading enemy forces? Why not call it our Victory Day? Mark your calendars now, and I'll leave you to contemplate this point with a reminder from the memoirs of General William Moultrie. This 14th of December, 1782, ought never to be forgotten by the Carolinians. It ought to be a day of festivity with them, as it was the real day of their deliverance and independence. Kevin Crothers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.